Is buying real estate an actual good investment vehicle for you? I get this question a lot from clients, friends, family. In this conversation today with Riley Oakley, we're talking about how do you actually make a decision to buy your first property? What things you need to consider? How do you determine where you go as far as the location? Because we do all know that real estate is location, location, location. And what numbers do you really need to calculate and know in order to make a decision about whether this investment is a profitable one? So join me on this interview. You and I know that making smart financial decisions can be challenging. But in 21st century, financial freedom is no longer just for the 1% wealthy. It is for you and me. The question is, how do we find time, avoid making painful mistakes, and find the best resources to help us reach our financial goals? Join me on my journey helping busy families figure out how they can gain financial confidence and clarity, get actionable tips, and learn from the best experts on how to stop trading time for money. It is now the time you started living your best financial life. My name is Anna Sherbunina, and welcome to the Money Boss Podcast. Hey, Money Bosses. Anna's here, and welcome back to the Money Boss Podcast. And today we're talking about how you can use real estate as a tool to grow your wealth. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. And so our guest today is Riley Oakley, the founder of Your First Income Property Program, who teaches people how to purchase and manage their income properties profitably and passively. And I think that's the biggest keys for my interest in having a conversation today. So first of all, Riley, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Anna. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure. I am excited. I know that... and. I've been around real estate for quite some time. Just a backstory, my husband sells commercial real estate. So definitely not a, you know, a first time talking about this topic. But what I'm really interested in hearing your story and your ideas and suggestions today is really to help our listeners understand, especially those who might be looking at real estate as a tool to kind of get that income you know, production and wealth growth. Because I would assume a lot of listeners may probably already own their home and not think of it as a, you know, as a tool for that, but that's the angle. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners, how did you get started and why, why real estate? Well, yeah, I'll give a bit of context and that will kind of lead into why I've done this and why I've kind of focused a lot of the last call it five or six years, even on building a portfolio and also helping people now to, to invest themselves. So I actually, around the age of 18, 19, I started a whole maintenance company where I knocked on houses. I was at university and I had to pay off tuition. And so I already had some type of exposure to the real estate market when I was involved in running this whole maintenance company. And, and I kind of started off as more of a contractor, you could say, running this company. And then quickly transitioned actually around two to three years of running that business. I realized that it wasn't overly scalable and I wanted to kind of go after a bigger fish, which was buying the property, not just working on it. And actually what I wanted to do, which was kind of a catalyst here, was I wanted to start up a renewable energy business, which was specifically going to be a geothermal company. And to run a geothermal company, you need a hydraulic drill. Those are very expensive, by the way. They're like a million dollars. And I was naive to the fact that, oh yeah, I'm sure the banks would probably give me a loan for this million dollar drill. So I go into the, into the bank, I ask them for a loan. They quickly deny me because my only asset at the time was a $2,000 vehicle. And so they, they kind of laughed me out, out the door. 
but that actually lit the fire under my butt to go and learn about what an asset was. So, you know, that, that's kind of what sparked my interest to learning about real estate assets and how they're more tangible. You can go and actually touch them. You know, stocks, you can't really control them that much. They're not tangible assets. You can't really go and touch them as much. And I can't walk into like Apple's office and like dictate how they're going to run the business. Whereas when I own a property, I can really dictate like which properties I buy. I can analyze those. I can control the tenants. A good amount. I can control the appreciation of the property by the renovations I do. There's lots of levers I can I can use there to change that return on my investment that I have from that property. So that's kind of what led me into buying real estate. And I've been doing that for about five, six years now. And it's gone quite well. We buy around 10 properties a year, quite consistently, all multifamily, residential. So two to four units. And, and we are actually looking to do more commercial. So maybe I'll talk to your husband there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be great for sure, for sure. Well, so one of the like the biggest objections, and I, I mean, I work with clients in helping them create financial plans, and right, and so they look at what you just were describing. Like some really feel great about, okay, I don't want to be, you know, the landlord. I don't want to deal with all of that, right? In terms of like looking at a property and saying that's a way for me to grow, you know, my wealth. And like I'm totally cool, you know, put all the money in the stocks and bonds, and I'm just going to look at it, you know, whenever or hopefully <laughs> often enough, at least once a year. So how do you help folks? And, and there's some who kind of sit on the fence. They're like, oh, well, I, you know, I get it. Like stocks and bonds and even cryptocurrencies right right now are great, you know, additions to the portfolio. But how do you kind of help somebody sort of who's sitting on this fence line saying, okay, well, I get it. That's all great to have. But I, I like the idea of real estate. I see other people do it. What is some of like mindset, you know, shifts or, you know, thoughts can you share you know, with the audience who are kind of like almost ready, but not quite there. Yeah, no, that's an interesting idea. I myself have invested in a bit of crypto and in some stocks as well. And and the one thing that is quite obvious is that the barrier to entry to invest in say stocks or crypto is quite low. You can be mm-hmm. sitting in your living room, the comfort of your own home on your phone, and you can download an app and put, uh, you know, $10 into a stock. It doesn't take any knowledge really, no experience, doesn't take really any barrier to entry except for that $10 and the ability to download an app on your phone and and you can invest. Whereas when you're going to buy an asset like real estate, well, you need to be able to get a mortgage. And that in and of itself is a pretty big challenge for a lot of people. But you also need a down payment. That down payment's probably most likely going to be a very, on the low end, low, low end, $20,000. So now you need at least $20,000 and a mortgage to go and buy this property. So the barrier to entry is higher. You also need to know quite a bit when it comes to like, is this a good property? Is it a bad property? Let's go and inspect it because you can lose a ton of money too, right? So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's just a matter of educating yourself and making sure that you find the alternative solutions. Maybe it isn't your own mortgage. Maybe it's someone else's. Maybe it isn't your own money for the down payment. Could be someone else's. When I bought my first property, I, I was still at university. There's no way I was going to get a mortgage anytime soon because I was quite quite heavily in student debt. And so for me, it was like pivoting and creating like an authority figure, learning a lot. So becoming like more of an expert at analyzing and renovating and doing property management. And then I just partnered with someone to co-own the property. So that's how we buy around 10 properties a year is co-owning them. Yeah. So for everyone, it's just a matter of like learning more and understanding it. I love that idea. I love the fact that you can actually bring in others who may have more time or more money, right? Or more of something that you don't have 
in order to buy real estate, right? And so this is, I think, one of the, like the biggest realizations. Once you get into into this game, it's like, okay, there are other a lot of other people who want to do it, but they just like they just for some reasons they they're they're kind of still sitting on that fence. Even I mean, to your context of this conversation, Yuri and I went out to um, to dinner with friends last night. We haven't seen them, you know, since pandemic, and we're just kind of talking, catching up. And so they're like, oh, we bought our, you know, we bought a property in uh, Austin, Texas, and we live in Northern California. So they're like, oh, you guys did? <laughs> Are you planning to move, right? That was the first question. They're like, oh, no, no. You know, this was just a, this is, because they just bought it a couple of months ago. This is just an investment that, you know, we're, we're considering or, you know, we're looking for more. So again, Knowing the friends, and this is just a personal example, but knowing these friends, like I would have never guessed you would be interested in doing something like that, right? Just because of you know, you know what they do in normal life and the kind of jobs they they work. But you know, this happens all the time, right? You see people just you know kind of jump and and go for this. So let's talk a little bit about. So maybe someone is ready. In the case of my friends, you know, they just they were ready to buy. Somehow they assessed that Austin, Texas was a better place, or at least a part of the country right now that has opportunities. So when, where do you begin? How do you start to look at the landscape of real estate and then sort of narrow, you know, where do you go? Do you buy with the single family home, which they did? Do you, you talked about multifamily, you know, multi-units, things like that. So like first step in the process. Okay, let, let's do it. So just out of 10,000 foot view, so the highest that we could go. The first step is just learning that you can actually go and buy a property. I think inevitably a lot of people really don't even realize that they don't even get to step one. And so that's the prerequisite here is like actually learning that, wow, we can go and we can actually buy investment properties with our own money, our own mortgage or with someone else's. So it's just that realization that's usually where things shift and you're like, okay, now it's possible. Now, what, what do we do to learn and actually go buy that property? The first step would be, well, let's actually learn how to analyze the city because there's so many cities that you can invest in. You could invest in Toronto, where I am. You can invest in Austin, Texas. You could invest in California. You can invest anywhere. So which city is the best and why? A part of that analysis, you're going to need to kind of figure out what's important to you in the asset and in the investment. Is appreciation important? If so, maybe in Austin, Texas would be better because population is readily increasing, whereas like somewhere more rural where the population increases by 10 people a year, you're probably not going to be appreciating very much. If you're looking for cash flow, though, maybe Austin, Texas won't be the best city. Maybe it would be that more rural city. So it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. And that will go through your analysis, which is step one. After you figure out the city, so you've done like a city research exercise, then step two would actually be in figuring out, well, what type of property do I want to buy? Like you mentioned, multifamily, that's what I do. And then Commercial is another option. So that's five or more units in a lot of areas, at least it would be. So apartment buildings. And then you also have single family homes and you have land development. You could do a pre-construction. So there's tons of different types of properties that you could buy. What I have kind of come to realize is that single families tend to be overly expensive investments, unless you're doing an Airbnb or a student rental, maybe, or if you're going to do a flip, right? But for the most part, if you're going to buy it and try to rent it, as a long-term rental, short or single families tend to be overly expensive single dwelling units. And so I always look for how many units can I buy based on the purchase price. And I like to buy around $100,000 units. So if I'm going to buy a four-unit building, I'd want to buy it for $400,000. Whereas a lot of single family homes go for 400000 
And, and the reason why is that, hey, the buying pool is massive. You're not just competing against other investors when you're going to buy a single family. You're also buying against families, people that have children and they have dogs and they want to own that own home, right? They don't want to buy an apartment building. You don't hear of families going to buy apartment buildings and live in them. That's not a thing. So I find when you're buying a two to four unit building, that's that sweet spot when you're starting off for the simple reason, again, that now you're just competing against investors. So your buying pool is less. And you're also not in the commercial area. So that means that you don't have to put down 30, 35, even 40% for your down payment. And the rules, the regulations aren't as strict when you're in that two to four unit space versus commercial and apartment buildings. And so it's less expensive and it's a bit easier to work on. So that, that's the type of property I prefer. But again, it, it depends on what you're looking for. If you have a lot of cash sitting around, you want a very turnkey asset that you're going to play the long term with, you might want to go buy an apartment building. And then the next kind of step, that last step, and then you're kind of like unleashed, I like to say, is figuring out what type of strategy you want to use. Because there's so many. There's like dozens and dozens of ways in which you can invest in real estate. Most commonly on HGTV, you have flipping. You know, people love flipping. It's very entertaining to watch on television, but very complicated to do in real life, to be honest. And then you have like wholesaling, which is like just flipping a contract for money. You don't even do anything with the property. You just flip the contract and make money. So you find it for cheap and then you just sell the contract. And then you have what's called the Burr strategy. So, you know, that's you buy it low, you fix it up, you rent it, and then you can refinance out the money. If it's a big enough kind of difference between what you bought it for and what it's worth now, you can refinance and pull out your money that you put in for the renovation and the down payment. There's lots of different ones. Those are the three most common strategies. So you have to figure out which strategy do you want to use and why. So the first six weeks that I work with any student, it's really going through these three steps. It's number one, figuring out which city and why. Then it's figuring out what type of property and why. And then lastly, it's also going to be what, what type of strategy and why are we going to be using. Once those three things are figured out, then, then it's off to the races. Then we at least are focused enough and that we're on the right track. What I tend to see time to time again is that people are learning about everything, all the strategies, all the cities, all the different property types, and they never make traction because they're just in this state of info overload and they're very kind of stuck because there is a ton of information out there. The industry goes very deep with knowledge and you can spend years learning about things that are irrelevant. That won't really help you get that first property. Hey, money bosses, are you ready to get your financial life in order? Once and for all, as soon as possible? Are you tired of living paycheck to paycheck? Do you often lose track of how much money you have to spend? Do you want to get your financial life together, but just don't quite know how? I am with you. I've been there. I've struggled through all of these. And I know you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to get better. So why do you continue to struggle? I know you can get your own money in order. It took me years to figure out. It took me years of pain, struggle, frustration, anger. But you don't have to go through all of that. You don't even have to get a financial planning degree like I did in order to be successful. Allow me to present to you my Money Flow system, a free playbook of how you can automate your finances, even if you hate budgeting. After you download this free playbook, you will never have to worry about budgeting and who likes that budgeting thing anyway. You will stop accumulating debt and create a bulletproof plan of how to quickly pay it off. 
you will be able to pinpoint exactly what your income and expenses are. You will never have to miss a single bill again. And you will always, always have a solid idea of how much money is in each of your accounts. So head over to money-flowsystem.com to download my free Money Flow Playbook, a blueprint to streamline your finances in less five or five weeks. Guaranteed. Head over to money-flowsystem.com. Yeah, I and I I tend to agree with that too because yes, you can get really caught up in talking to friends and you know Californians here talk a lot a lot about going to Texas and going to Arizona, right? Because I mean, you can't buy a $400,000 house here. <laughs> you cannot buy anything for $400,000 here. So it's like you have, you're right, you have all this information. So I guess my, my kind of question to follow up on that, once you figure out the city, right, and the way you figure out the city is looking at the demographics, right, or what's happening. Because one of the things we all heard about real estate that it's all about location, right? Like location, location, location. I think like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, talked about that in their books. And so- one of those things that I'm struggling with is, okay, I know like when you look at the market here where I live, right? Or in your own local backyard, right? In your town, you know exactly what's happening where you drive the streets, you walk the streets. How do you, again, maybe this is a block too, but how do you like, if I am really interested in Austin, Texas, again, building up my conversation with friends yesterday, I don't know anything about Austin, Texas. I can look at all the statistics and numbers and things like that, maybe visit. So how do you like make that transition? Something has to make sense, right? For you to consider that a location being, you know, the one that you go after. Yeah. Like it, there is a lot there and there's going to be layers to anything. Like we can, again, kind of stay at a superficial level, but uh, just, just a few quick things. Like if we were looking at Austin, Texas, never having been there myself and always having wanted to go, but you know, the truth of the matter is everything now is online. Anything that you need to know to analyze properties is going to be found online. You don't need to go and drive that city. You can, you know, use Google Maps or Google Earth and you can drop the little yellow guy in the streets and you can scroll through and walk through the city without having to go there. So I've invested in cities where I've never been. And, and you can easily do that, to be honest. It's just a matter of like doing a proper analysis. And a couple of quick things that you can do is you can go on Craigslist or Kijiji or Facebook and see what units are renting for there. If you can Figure out what one bedrooms are renting for on average in a certain area of that city. Uh, maybe you break that city down into quadrants. And so you're just figuring out like this north end of the city, how much are one bedrooms going for based on just quick market research? What are two bedrooms going for? What are three bedrooms going for? And okay, now I have kind of an average, you know, the one beds are going for 1500, two beds are 18, three beds are 2200. Now I can use that in my analysis. Then I'm going to go and I'm going to research well, how much are units going for? So if, again, I'm going to buy a four unit building and in Austin, Texas, they're $200,000 per unit. So it's $800,000 for a fourplex. Well, what if like in a more rural area, it's $100,000 per unit. So 400,000 for that fourplex. So I'm going to use that in my, my kind of analysis. And so those are the two main numbers that I want to learn is how much are one beds, two and three beds going for, and then how much are units going for? And based on that, I'm going to compare and contrast between one city and another to realize which one is, is the most beneficial, right? But again, that, that's one very small thing. And like, there's lots of different metrics to look at, but, but you know, 
it, it's very important not to get stuck in a space of like saturation of knowledge because you can overanalyze too and be in paralysis analysis. So, you know, yeah, you want to keep it simple, stupid, I like to say. And we use about four different metrics when we're analyzing cities that are all very important to us. But you could easily pick out probably a few dozen demographics or metrics like occupancy rate, vacancy rate, uh, what's the employment rate. And there's so many different ones. If you go on Stats Canada or in America there, you can go on Stats and just figure out the population and everything on a certain city and compare and contrast those two. You can really go down the rabbit hole in the analysis, which can be challenging, right? So for the numbers, because I am a numbers person, obviously, right? <laughs> for the type of work I do, and it has to make sense. So I know you mentioned 100,000 per unit. That metric probably came from analysis that you've done in the areas that you invest, right? Because again, California, Quebec, you probably have to spend a million dollars <laughs> on a unit, right? Like I seriously, I'm maybe, no, I think I'm right. Like a duplex costs $2 million, right? So it's a million dollars a unit. What do you, I guess, and this this is something you mentioned too, like knowing your strategy, right? Because if your strategy is to buy this property, whatever it is, and fix it up and sell it, do you really care what it rents for? I mean, it's good to know, right? Good to have that data about the market. But if your strategy is to buy that property, fix it up or, you know, add some value to it and rent it, right? Then you need to know, right, what, what the numbers are, because otherwise, like, are you going to make any profit, right? Because we want the profit from this transaction or from this deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like the one thing that we will do at the beginning is we're going to keep the options open. So usually there's around three to five different cities of interest where the investor that I'm coaching or I'm working with, they're going to be interested in these three to five cities. Sometimes it's one or two. And if that's the case, we're going to kind of stretch it. And we're going to look around to see what other cities are available. So we'll do the analysis for about three to five cities of interest. And then based on that, then we're going to move on to the next one, which is, okay, what type of property type makes the most sense? Then we're going to move on to step three, which is what strategy makes the most sense. Once we figure out three to five cities, we figure out the property type, and then we figure out the strategy, then we can reverse engineer, okay, we're using the flip strategy. Which of these three to five cities makes the most sense for the flip strategy? Because like you said, maybe the flip strategy makes more sense in one of the markets versus another. But now at least we've done our market research in these three to five. We can see which one would line up the most with that strategy. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Because again, I and this is really from the conversations I've had with clients, right? And looking at, okay, we're like, we really want to buy um, you know, income producing property. Are they most people don't say income producing property, they say you want to buy, you know, real estate, a house or you know, duplex, and they kind of get the concepts, but I'm always thinking like, okay, are you really going to make money? And so, especially again, if we're talking about like, you really know the area where you live and you understand like, you know, what things cost, like making a decision about, okay, even in the case of my friends that I had dinner with last night, like they could have bought a property here. They know the area pretty well, but, and they had their own reasons why they didn't. One of them, and I'm just, that's not theirs, but typically what I hear and see is like, Cash flow in California is pretty hard. Like you can buy a property, but if you rent it out, you probably aren't going to get a whole lot of cash flow on a monthly basis, right? You just have to maybe sit around and wait for appreciation, right? So like, this is like one of those things you kind of weigh in. What do you want? Like, I'm sure it comes out of your strategy too, right? Do you want quick chunk of money? And that is probably more like, okay, buy the, the property, add value, sell it. And there you go. You got your chunk of money, you're moving on. Or do you really want more of like this monthly checks coming in 
right? And then at some point in time, you may sell the property or you probably, you mentioned like cash it out by taking the equity out. So I guess like looking at your financial situation, this is more financial planner advice. Like, what is it that you want? You want the profit, right? Like we want to make money from owning properties, but also like what, you know, how much time do you have? And this is one of the questions I have for you too. Like, how do you add this responsibility? (laughs) Because it's like a full-time job, right? Doing doing all the research and being involved. So like at the end of the day, what do you want? Obviously money to make money on it, but like what's the path? So talk a little bit about what you see with your students and the community you in. Like how do they incorporate that in realm of like, I don't have a whole lot of time on my hands to do this, but I do want to invest in real estate. That's a really good question. It comes up a lot because a lot of people I do work with, they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s. And they're working their full-time job. They're just starting their career. Or sometimes they're still at university or college. And they might have 5 to 10 hours a week maximum set aside for running you know, their, their rental portfolio. So if that's the case, then you're going to probably get locked at like two or three properties. And that's not going to be very scalable. So you know, knowing all of that, knowing the amount of time that they have at their disposal is very important when we're starting off and working with them. And so one thing I see across the board is that the people that don't have as much time to put into their portfolio in managing it and doing all the guest communication or the property management, really, the bookkeeping, is that we're going to have to make sure that the properties that they do select and onboard into their portfolio have really good and healthy profit margins because there's going to need that to be, a, to be that extra kind of profit there, that extra money coming in that they can use to hire we call them a, a gopher or a boots on the ground person. Someone that can be doing that extra work for them, re-renting units, can be do- dealing with the maintenance requests, can be really helping them out in service in the portfolio. So uh, they're going to be a bit more strict in the properties that they do select. So you know th- that's just really all we need to do is make sure that when we're doing that analysis, they're okay with maybe an 8% property management fee or, or paying someone hourly to go and do this extra work that they calculate that into their analysis. Versus someone else that might have more time that they want to put into their portfolio, so therefore they're going to have they're going to have more money because they don't have to pay someone else to do those things. They can actually take on that money themselves. I'm always of the opinion though of like delegating and like leveraging the responsibility out that management as much as you can because that's going to be the quickest way that you can put your time into your strong suit. Usually in the analysis, that's going to be your strong suit, or in managing the property manager, managing the renovation managing the bookkeeping, you don't really want to be that person in the trenches doing all that nitty gritty work because, um, you know, that's not usually where your time is best spent as an investor. So, you know, it's very important though that you calculate in those extra costs associated with not being the person doing those kind of entry level positions. And so that also then kind of leads you to the kind of the bottom line question is, okay, so what is a healthy profit, right? If you factored in, maybe you don't have a whole lot of time and you're willing to pay a management company and, you know, the boots on the ground person and all of that stuff. So do you have any rule of thumb for like evaluating a property? How do you like decide, do I buy this property? Because it has, you know, $200 a month cash flow. AK, my friends were bragging about that last night. Like, okay, is that a good profit? I don't know. That's a really good question. Bottom line, two numbers, two numbers to keep in mind. I like to keep it again, simple, stupid, but uh, we can overcomplicate this a lot. And there there are different numbers that we can look for and we do, but the two major numbers that always need to be met are these. So at the bottom, at the very bottom, 
when we run the two numbers. The one is cash on cash return on investment. So we look for that to be a minimum of 10%. So if we were to look at that formula, it's very simple. All it is, is the cash flow, annual cash flow divided by the initial investment. So the amount of money that you still have in the property versus the uh, annual cash flow. Okay. So annual cash flow divided by the initial investment equals your cash on cash return on investment. So that's just measuring again, like the return on the money that you still have in it based on how much money is coming out of that property in the run of a year. All right. So if it's 10 on ca- 10% cash and cash ROI, after 10 years of cash flow, I'm going to have enough money out in just cash flow alone that will be able to cover the entire cost of the initial investment. But keep in mind, hey, if you do that refinance thing that we were talking about and you pull out all of the money that you had invested, your cash and cash return on investment is huge because now you might have no money left, but you're making $12,000 a year in cash flow. That becomes what we call an infinite return, where there's really no return. It's just it's just making money upon money. And uh, it's just a bit of your time put in now, none of your own money left invested. So that's the interesting thing with, with real estate I like is that you can own assets with none of your own money left invested. And now it's an infinite return, which you can't really get anywhere else on the planet. Then this other number as well that we look for is called total return on investment. That's like the biggest number. That's the most important number. And we look for that to be 25% ROI. So return on investment. So 25%. So the total ROI is going to be made up of three different things. One is your cash on cash ROI. Another is your equity ROI. And your third one there is your appreciation ROI. So if you add all three of those together, your total ROI is all three of those kind of levers of how you make money in real estate, your return on investment levers, your equity, appreciation, and cash flow. Add all those together, get 25%. So that would mean that in any given year, your annual return on investment for that property is 25%. I'm pretty happy with that. That's a pretty good return on investment if we can do that year over year over year. Typically, we put in our analysis, 2% appreciation, which is just like the rate of inflation typically every year. We're not like saying, hey, let's expect a 20% return on investment in California, like you might have seen this last year, because that that's just not going to be consistent across the board. The market also might come down. But traditionally, it's always been at least 2% every year appreciating. And I don't buy on appreciation. That's always a bonus for me, because we don't really get to control appreciation. That's uh, the market's doings. So. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, well, I mean, I'm of that thought as well. I am interested to see cash flow, right? And that's where, like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about Austin, Texas. And, you know, these numbers actually make sense. But when you, like, when you hear $200 a month, you're like, okay, I mean, that's not, that's, that's still profit, right? That's still income coming in from the property. But when you look at, like, when you understand if, is there an appreciation? Because, Again, living in a high cost area like California, maybe sort of shifted that in my thinking, right? Because people here assume your property is going to go. I'm sure they assume that everywhere, but here particularly, like that property is going to increase in value. Like you better suck it up and hold on to it and have a negative cash flow because five years from now, it's going to be worth you know X amount of dollars, double or triple, and so that's that's the payoff. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm always advocating for folks to understand, like, is there a cash flow? Because appreciation, it's like a bonus, right? That's like an extra thing you get, even though in your example, you put a very small margin, like, like the 2% is, is really low. I was actually surprised you said that. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely advocate guys to think about like, is there, is there a cash flow that you're getting? Or would you 
here's a question to follow up on. Would you consider a property if there was no cash flow, but it broke even, like it covered expenses, you were like getting zero at the end of the month? I personally wouldn't. Not saying that that's the right way to invest. From my experience and just knowledge based around getting additional mortgages, once you're tapped out with the banks, cash flow is of the essence. It's very, very important because usually banks might tap you off at five mortgages. If, if you're you know, if you have a really good income, you might get up to 10, who knows. But if you want to get over that kind of financial hurdle, when they tap out your own personal debt to service ratio, then you have to think, okay, well, how do I get more mortgages? You're either going to partner with people that have mortgages or the other alternative, which I definitely advocate for, is making sure that your portfolio cash flows enough that the banks are willing to give you mortgages based on your portfolio's performance. So if you have a really great track record of buying cash flowing assets, that really offset the entire debt of the portfolio, then the banks are actually looking at your portfolio saying, yeah, you're a sophisticated investor. You have a track record of cash flowing assets. The debt to service of the portfolio is good enough. You will give you unlimited mortgages as long as you keep doing what you're doing. And I I can't think of one person that wouldn't want to be in that position. So that's why the 10% cash on cash ROI is very important to regulate that we are cash flowing the portfolio the way that we need to be. Yeah, I like that because you can't come to the bank and tell them, hey, I, I know that properties in Austin, Texas or California are going to go up 10%. That's what they've done last year. <laughs> They're not going to buy that, right? They want to see income coming in right, every month, every year from that property in order to give you that, that loan. That's a good point. Thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to uh, share with our listeners before we close for today? Yeah, like I think my my biggest message here, if there were to be a message from the podcast that I, I want to give all the listeners, is that like you mentioned, yeah, it's a five, 10 year type of uh, timeline. Like you have to hold on to it for a long period of time. So be patient. You know, from my from my own experience, I lack a good amount of patience and it's challenging for me. So I, I just want to like pass on that message, like be patient and and do your best there to wait the five, 10, 15 years, because it will be worth it. There's going to be up markets, down markets, flat markets. You know, you want to make sure that you're in it for the long run. So on average, you're coming up positive and you're not selling when things go down because that, you know, you could lose some money there. So that's the biggest message. If anyone wants to reach out and connect, I'd love to, to grab a call. And again, the whole idea here of what I do is to help people buy the first property. So I go from zero to one with them. If if you if you're listening and you're at no properties and you want to get to your very first one in the next 12 months, feel free to reach out because you might be able to work together. Awesome. Yes. Can you please share with listeners how they can can connect with you? Of course. Yeah. You can go to my website. So it's just simply www.rileyoikel.com. So my first and last name.com. And then there's a tab called coaching. So you can go there and you can book a, a discovery call with me and we can jump on a 15 minute call. Awesome. Thank you so much. I will include this in our show notes as well. And yes, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And I'm excited because I know that there, there are definitely people out there who are ready to buy their next property. It's just, it's just a matter of them getting the right tools, the right coaching, the right community to do it. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. And thanks so much, Riley, for joining us today. Yep, thanks for having me on, Anna. Hey, Money Boss. Thanks for tuning in today. If this episode did help you, then please be sure to share it with someone else you think will benefit from it too. After all, smart financial decisions are for everyone. Uh, so don't be greedy. I hope I can help you even further by sharing with you how thousands of clients I worked with in my career over the last 16 years created their very own successful financial lives 
on their terms. It's hard for me to do this over an audio, and if you are ready for the next chapter in your life, then be sure to go to MainStreet-Money.com to get your free resource guide to help you begin correcting top six financial mistakes I see people make all the time, such as not having clear financial goals, not having a handle on spending or saving for the future, not knowing how to get rid of all the debts, and of course, not having a clear strategy or plan on how to protect your hard-earned money. Until next time, remember, you are the boss of your life.